Welcome to a Shot in the Arm podcast. I'm your host, Ben Plumley, and this is a podcast that explores issues in global health and human rights. Well, in this special season three, we're partnering up with the Bay Area Global Health Alliance to look at COVID-19 and to get an understanding from leaders uh, in the field about what's really going on. And in this episode, I'm absolutely honored to be joined by two titans of global public health. We're joined by Professor Michelle Berry, a professor at Stanford University. And we're also joined by Mary Pittman, who is a doctor and who is the president and CEO of the Public Health Institute. Mary, Michelle, welcome to A Shot in the Arm podcast. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Ben. So, Michelle, let me start with you. You have a range of responsibilities at Stanford. Could you tell us a bit about those? Well, that's the beauty of Stanford. One can do many things. I'm actually the Dean of Global Health here. I'm a professor of medicine and tropical diseases, but I have affiliations at our environmental institute called the Woods Institute and the Freeman Spogli Institute. And Mary, can you tell us a bit about the Public Health Institute uh, and a bit about what it does? Sure, Ben. Thank you. Uh, the Public Health Institute is a freestanding nonprofit, and it's dedicated to promoting health, well-being, and quality of life in California, around the nation, and across the globe. We do our work in partnership with government, with other nonprofits and academic centers, and we have about 650 staff who are doing this around the world. We uh, engage in research, we implement programs, and we're also actively involved in policy development. So... As we kick off this discussion about the global response to COVID, a question that many of our subscribers like to know about our guests is what motivates them and what drove them to, to where they are. Uh, and Michelle, if I may start with you, how, how did you come to devote your career to infectious disease and tropical medicine? Um, well, it began after the Vietnam War. I'm an oldie. Um, <laughs> I became really... Um, passionate about refugee health and felt that the best skill set that I could get um, to help refugees were uh, skill sets in the diseases that nobody was teaching us about. That was tropical diseases. Um, so I had the honor and privilege of starting the first refugee, one of the first refugee health clinics in the United States after the Vietnam War. Wow. Mary, uh, you and I are, are public health professionals. We're a very peculiar breed. What, what drew you to public health? Well, Ben, I originally thought that I wanted to be a physician. And as I was uh, working in college, I was doing a lot of community outreach and substance abuse programming. And what I found was that my real passion and interest related to what helps people stay healthy, and what are the issues on a population base that contribute to some people being ill. So I, I found that I really was more drawn to the population side than individuals, and that's public health. Absolutely. And, and now as we get into to COVID, Michelle, you've presented and commented widely on the various responses that have happened around the world. And as you look at uh, countries that have been uh, hard hit by uh, the coronavirus, 
which ones do you think have got it right? I'd be glad to comment on that, Ben. But first, I'd like to build on what Mary said, um, which is, I would like to say that even if one is interested in individual disease and medical diseases, one always needs to look at the larger picture of public health and vice versa. Um, I think the fact that our country has been divided into public health schools and medical schools, um, for me, is not the right approach. I think they should be better integrated. But that's an, I'm sorry. I had a, no, amen, I had a amen rant to and that. rave a little bit. No, amen, <laughs> no, no. and we're going to come back to that. Right. Um, but but, but let, me, let me talk to you about the countries that I think have done it right. Um, I think if you look at who has flattened the curve, um, or even been able to reopen. We've seen how uh, China is, Wuhan is cautiously reopening. Um, they've been the countries that have, what I would say, have had a dress rehearsal. Um, and that's Singapore, Taiwan, the territory Hong Kong, China, um, these, and South Korea. And the reasons why I say a dress rehearsal um, is basically they had to deal with SARS-1. Um, that happened in 2003. It was a scarier, it was a scary disease because it had a much higher mortality. It was not as infectious when it was all said and done over the 18 months or two years that it was around. It killed only 8,000 people. Um, but they, these countries learned that they had to do physical distancing, aggressive thermal uh, temperature checking um, because SARS-1 actually was not infectious. Um, unlike SARS-2, but SARS-1 was not infectious until there was a fever. So these fever clinics were set up. Um, and so I think that's why they've done quite well. And, and we're beginning to see in these countries um, a, a sort of a second wave coming from uh, people coming into the country. And I, I noticed particularly from uh, students from the UK, which is which is very disturbing. Um, Mary, can I ask you the same question? And, and, and looking at it through a public health lens, who has stood out to you? Okay. Well, I was actually in Singapore at the very beginning of the epidemic. I was there uh, with my husband for some academic meetings. And I was wildly impressed with the public health messaging. Not only did our hotel take our temperature every day when we came in, they showed us how to properly put a mask on. They had running videos. Every newspaper had articles about what you should do to prepare yourself, your family, and your community. And they really emphasize community spread. So I personally came back and I showed everyone the newspapers from Singapore, and I got a very lukewarm response. But finally, I have to say that I was impressed with what uh, the governor um, in Washington state, Governor mm -hmm. Inslee, did very quickly to establish an approach that would implement physical distancing. And then shortly followed on by the Bay Area counties who were ahead of the game in California and not only really emphasizing social distancing, but shutting down schools and businesses and I think the leadership shown by Governor Newsom has been quite incredible as well. So I want us to come back to the U.S. in, in well, just a second. No, go, go ahead. Go ahead, Michelle. Uh, ben, I'd like to um, add to that um, some of the medical aspects that these countries did that we just have not done, which is 
extensive testing. Um, testing not, at, you know, when you can't breathe and you're terribly sick, but testing early symptoms and even asymptomatics. Um, and in that respect, um, they were able to contain it early and do extensive uh, tracing because they had quite a bit of epidemiolo epidemiologists to do. In fact, in basically in China, they had five epidemiologists to every case doing case contracting. And as Mary, I'm sure, can um, comment upon, um, that's just not, we're just not set up for that in the United States in our public health stuff. Well, so and again, they we're going to come, hang on, hang on a minute, Mary. We're going to come back. See, I knew this was going to happen when you get <laughs> these two titans together. We're going to come back to the US in just a second. But Michelle, I, I, I really also wanted to know, looking at the uh, countries around the world, putting the US to one side, who has done, how shall I put this, less than an effective job in responding? I don't like to criticize any of my colleagues out there. I think um, what happened in Iran and what happened in Italy, um, you know, I think when you wait too long uh, to actually do shelter in place, I'd like to think of the, the, the concept of there's a certain amount of water that comes on a beach, and if it comes on in waves, it doesn't overwhelm your system. But when it comes on as a tsunami all at once, and it can be the same amount of cases, it just overwhelms the healthcare systems. Um, so I think if you, you don't shelter in place and let the epidemic stutter along with a flattened curve, um, you're going to get into trouble. But my heart goes out to my colleagues in Italy and some of the other in Spain and Iran, where they're really working with overwhelmed systems. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, Mary, if you were to look at this again through the, the lens of public health, where would you say we've had perhaps the biggest challenges outside of the U.S.? Outside of the U.S.? Well, I think certainly the mixed messages that you've heard in the U.K., for example, has been really devastating there. And... Um, Similarly, I think we are seeing in African nations that there wasn't a lot of attention paid because the number of cases started um, quite a bit after it did in the U.S., but I, I think it's not a fault of the African countries. Um, I think there was a real lack of uh, support for them to get geared up, and we can talk more about that. So let's come on to the U.S. And I, I would love both of your thoughts on, on where we are. I mean, you know, this is, this is extraordinary, really. There is so much about the U.S. response that has been fabulous and so much that has just been absolutely terrifying. Um, you know, the Global Health Security Index lists the United States as the, 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 the nation on Earth most prepared for a pandemic. And um, I, I, Mary, I'd like to start with you and, and, and particularly put to you a question that one of our subscribers, Judith Buckner, um, put, which I think is absolutely spot on. Why weren't we better prepared? Well, that's a really good question. And I, I think uh, the first was the downplaying of the impact of the virus. And the uh, we were thought to be invulnerable and that was the message that we got from the president and from the federal government. And that put us behind the curve so that we got a late start. 
We had mixed messaging, and the messaging became political. So you had people not believing some of the public health messages that were getting out because they were overshadowed by other messages. And I think the other major error was the screw-up with the test kits. And the fact that the U.S. did not accept the WHO and, and German test kits when we absolutely had a failure in the ones here in the United States really, again, was a, a great challenge. And those set us up to be leading all of the other countries in the curve of new cases and deaths. And so we lost a lot of time, and we also did not gear up to be able to provide the protective equipment for the frontline healthcare workers. And that has been really a, a terrible, terrible thing that has resulted, I think, in unnecessary deaths and unnecessary uh, critical essential health workers getting sick. The patchwork approach that we've taken to this pandemic is something that we know how to address. We didn't have to have this kind of patchwork approach if we had followed what are really federal guidelines for pandemics. But instead, we've left it to the states to make their own decisions. As a result, you see differences in social distancing, uh, sheltering at home, and also testing. I, I could go on if you want, because I think there are so many uh, lessons that we're going to be studying at the end of this pandemic that say, why didn't we learn from the past experiences? And one of the things that, to me, most important to point out is the fact that this is highlighting the devastation to our public health system. And hopefully we'll talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Michelle, your thoughts on- Oh, I can add to that, believe me. <laughs> I, you know, I I think Mary's points are all well taken, particularly the, the debacle over the testing. Um, but I would say it's not only the beginning that we screwed up. Um, we're still not testing aggressively right. enough. Um, the United States has tested less than 1% of its people. Um, when you have a country like South Korea that could ramp up to 15,000 tests a day and got all of their manufacturers making tests, um, they really put us to shame. And I, I don't quite understand why the great United States was not and, and still is unable uh, to ramp up testing either swabs or serology, because both of those are going to be very important as we see how we um, disengage um, from shelter at home, although I think it'll be quite some time. I think also there was inconsistent messaging when the president of the United States you know, says, and Fauci say, we all have to wear masks. And then he says, but I'm not going to wear a mask. That is so different than the messaging um, that happened in the countries that were able to flatten the curve. And then I'll say something from a medical point of view. If you look at the China data, I, and also Singapore and also South Korea, what they did that we're not doing, um, and I would like to see us doing, is that 70 to 80 percent of transmission occurs in the home when you send a sick patient back. Um, it doesn't necessarily, or keep a mildly ill patient in the house. Um, what those countries did that flattened it, they actually um, got isolation facilities to keep COVID-19 patients separate from family. Because family, I think that's what we're seeing in Italy, because families, intergenerational families live together, and it's easily being passed on to the grandparents. 
And here we are at, at, at a point of time. Our time of recording is sort of the first week of April 2020. And, and we see, particularly in California, a sense that perhaps the curve is being flattened. And in the Bay Area, in San Francisco County, that they're not needing the hospital beds uh, or the uh, isolation um, facilities right. that they needed. But my question for you, Michelle, is, is that simply because we haven't done enough testing? We don't really know what the, the, uh, the level of uh, the coronavirus is in the population. Personally, I do not think so. I'm, you, I'm sure you've read the couple of reports out there that are talking about it's all about the denominator. Um, I, I think we need to stay absolutely razor sharp on the numerator because we do not want our hospital situation to be overwhelmed and have the massive deaths that we're seeing in Italy. But I suspect when you do serology, they've done serology in UK and they found about two and a half, three percent are positive. And in order to get herd immunity for this disease, unlike measles, where you need 90 percent, this disease, you need about 70 percent of the people positive. So we're nowhere near herd immunity. Well, well herd immunity is something that is uh, has been has been mentioned uh, right at the start of the UK response. I, I, I suppose, like a herd of cows, we were all going to be uh, developing immunity. <laughs> Mary, your thoughts on uh, uh, how we move from here, and, and, and particularly the lessons learned from from California. Well, I think there are a number of lessons from California around flattening the curve. It's not consistent across all of our counties in the state, but now we have state leadership and we should be able to see that flattening of the curve uh, throughout California. And I think when you when you see that there the hospital beds are not full, I don't think we can be uh, sending Complacent. back and assuming that those beds won't be needed at some point in the future. We don't have as uh, Michelle was saying, we don't have all of the data to be able to predict when there might be a spike. So I think it's better to be prepared and not necessarily need all the resources that we have. And um, and certainly California is showing leadership when the governor announced that he was going to step up and fill the void since um, we haven't invoked the defense production Production Act across the country to get the protective equipment. Um, the governor, I think, announced that he would be importing 200 million masks per month, which will be sufficient for California and also to help other states. And I think that excess capacity can be important so that one state, one region can help out another one, as we've seen some of the products sent to New York already from California and from other states. So I, I have, have to, to oh, can, go on. Ben, can I just ask yeah. what I just want to <laughs> just say one little statistic that blew me away. I just we just looked at our numbers at Stanford Hospital and even with an empty relatively empty hospital, we are now burning through 83,000 masks a day. Gosh. And it's about 1495s and we're not using the N95s. Wow. Because we don't have that many covid positive patients yet. And so, I mean, if 83,000, that's just one hospital. But put that up against New York, where they didn't oh have God. sufficient hospitals and colleagues that I've spoken to at, in Baltimore, where they're having to reuse their masks multiple times. And they're now building facilities to be able to decontaminate the masks. So 
we have such a broad variation in the ability of this country to respond to this pandemic. And it's heartbreaking what we're doing to the frontline workers. So I've, I've got a question for, for both of you. And Mary, perhaps I can start with you first. You've, you've had extensive experience in the AIDS response. And I think that is really relevant here. Now, many of our subscribers, yes, are interested in global health, but they're very passionate about human rights. And even before COVID, I think there was a perhaps a slight fraying between trust in science and trust in governments. Uh, and particularly for people on the margins, a sense that if they were, you know, they weren't going to provide information to their uh, government officials and get information to authorities. And, and I think there's a real lesson to be learned here in the way the community, somewhat as Tony Fauci said in front of uh, Vice President Mike Pence, that the gay community had such an impact on the way we, we responded to HIV. How do we square the circle when we know that in the absence of effective and accessible treatments and vaccines, we need our communities to self-isolate? What happens when our communities can't or won't? Well, I think if we look at what we saw at the height of the HIV pandemic was that people were caring for each other. And that was often in the absence of a government or healthcare provider being available to them. And we're seeing a lot of that now. I think with mutual aid groups springing up, um, they're filling in for needs that they're seeing existing in their own communities. And so I think it's not that people don't think it's important, but I think that they're stepping up in many ways. Now, there is an important skepticism with, uh, with data, but I really think we have to frame this not as communities won't isolate, but often they simply can't. You know, when housing is barely affordable, especially here in California, and wages are low, people have to work and they, in the past, haven't had paid sick leave, and some people can't afford to just stay home. Well, it's critical that we get the message out that we are going to support people if they're sick to stay home, because that's how we're going to continue to spread um, this virus. And so we have to think about how we can create the long-term supports and systems that aren't asking people to choose between paying their bills and protecting their families and protecting their health and their community's health. I think there are a couple of other major lessons from the HIV epidemic, and probably the biggest one is that we have to engage communities who are impacted in both defining the problems that we have to address as well as finding the solutions. And initially, you know, in HIV, we had to carefully craft um, our policies so that people's rights um, were protected while we were also protecting the community. And, you know, what was at risk then was people were being discriminated against, losing their jobs, losing their housing, their insurance. And so we had to find local champions. And I think that's what we have to do now, particularly in the African-American community where we are seeing a disproportionate impact. Um, but it's not just that community it's all communities have to have local champions getting the message out to supplement what we're doing from a public health governmental messaging. And, and Michelle, I'd like to ask you the, the, the question in a slightly different way, the same question. Uh, you've devoted your life to 
making sure that uh, access to health is something that is for the many, not the few, and that the the rights of a person in Kenya to have access to good health care is the same as the rights of a person in Kansas. So has COVID made you rethink uh, or reinforce the the balances between the needs of the indiv individual with the, with the with the needs of the collective. Um, no, no, not one bit. Um, you know, we are on this planet together. Um, I think we need to think about disparities and human rights. Um, I I do think um, when you look that there's a balance. There's a tension between human rights and public health sometimes. Mm. Um, and when you think about the extremely uh, XDRTB, tuberculosis, that's resistant to every single drug, uh, I think there needs to be uh, both a carrot and a stick to isolating that person. Um, and we've learned a lot from Ebola and how important it was to get community buy-in and community engagement. You just can't send the government or the military out there. What happened in Liberia was horrible. Um, and I happen to know Ellen Surley, if she's one of a friend and also someone I uh, admire greatly. She made a big mistake by sending out the military to quarantine uh, some of the poorer parts of uh, Monrovia. So I think we need to learn uh, that you need good education, good communication, and buy-in from the community. And I do believe in the collective. Uh, that it's not about individual. I, I think what's happening in Idaho is really sad uh, with the guns and, and holding off saying, I'll never quarantine myself. Yeah. And and so let's turn to where we go from and here. And also what's happening in our Native American. Uh, yes. I don't know if you've been seeing what's going on there. Um, that has, it's being, it's hitting our indigenous, our Native American reservations in a big way. Um We've spoken about how this is a disease that anybody can infect. Can, can infect. Uh, the virus can infect anybody. But in fact, it's really reinforcing the iniquity uh, and the disparities in our in our communities. So whether it's the African American community, the Latino community in New York, particularly, um, or our Native American uh, sisters and brothers, absol absolutely. But I really wanted us now to sort of focus on where we go from here. You know, we we have some incredible frontline fighters. Yes, the nurses and doctors in hospitals, the community workers who are on the front line providing services to uh, the homeless, particularly here in the Bay Area. Um, but in other essential areas, our Amazon drivers, our supermarket cashiers, and I'm mm -hmm. thinking of Safeway making their cashiers uh, and their employees essential staff. Mary, what do we need to do to to fix this broken system? Well, I think that we have to be acknowledging that these are essential service providers, whether they're healthcare providers or whether they're driving the Amazon truck or they're uh, cooking the food that gets delivered to people. They're all heroes. But some people don't have a choice to be working. And as I said earlier, you know, we have to make sure that we're providing protection to all of them. They need paid sick leave so that they can stay home when they're sick. Our grocery store, our local grocery store 
very early on put up plastic shields for their cashiers. And I heard some people complaining about that at first, you know, why are they putting these barriers up? But I thought that the owner of that local grocery store was a hero for taking that precautionary step to protect his workers. And so I think that all of the essential uh, people who are continuing to work should have access to protective gear, you know, a, a face mask, not necessarily a, a medical standard one, but gloves, um, antiseptic wipes. And we have to acknowledge that everyone is important. And so I think one of the things that might come out of this is a greater acknowledgement for getting a living wage and providing some of the benefits that people have been fighting for a long time, but now they realize how critical those people are to having our society function. And Michelle, I, I know you have some specific recommendations that you would like to see from, from a public health perspective at the federal level, uh, well, and, and indeed beyond, I mean, the connections with planetary health. But but could you talk about what you see as the the priorities for the U.S. coming out of this? Yeah, well, I think this is a real wake-up call uh, to the U.S. Um, I think we watched Trump dismantle our pandemic preparedness uh, at the cabinet level. Um, I think that needs to be reinstituted, and it really needs to be at the cabinet level because it is all about global health security. It's just as important as military security in my mind. Um, I also think um, that the, the global health security agenda, which is a plan where many of the high-income countries strengthen the surveillance of low-income countries, because if you look at where these pandemics have started, and I've actually written with Paul Weiss about this, many of these pandemics start in countries of conflict with weak health infrastructures uh, that are unable to do good surveillance. And we as a planet need to help the parts of our earth that are not doing good surveillance. Um, so I would like to see, unlike um, our chief who wants to pull back WHO funding, I would like to see WHO funding increased. I would like to see a platform for pandemic preparedness um, be done on the global level as well as the national level. And personally, I think we need a Manhattan Project for this virus. I think we need many different disciplines, education, labor, um, infectious disease. I, you know, right now we just see CDC and Tony Fauci. I, you know, where's education? What about long distance learning? What about childcare? Um, I think we need to have a multidisciplinary approach. I totally And then don't agree. get me started about planetary health. <laughs> <laughs> so, so all three of us, we are members of the Bay Area Global Health Alliance. Uh, Mary, you're the, you're the board chair. Yes. Uh, what do you think we should be doing at this extraordinary moment in time? Well, I think we're doing it right now, and that is that we are sharing information and lessons learned uh, with the general public, and I think that's absolutely essential. One of the advantages we have in the alliance is that we have the private sector, we've got all of the, uh, the wisdom and innovation of the corporate sector and a lot of the technologies that I know are being put to good use. So 
we can learn from that and get shared lessons that we can begin to apply in public health that certainly could use some of that innovation. The Alliance also allows us to um, engage with people across sectors that we wouldn't necessarily, not only for sharing our experiences, but also for partnering and collaborating and trying some new pilots and some new approaches that can bridge those sectors and potentially scale efforts that are going on in a very small pilot basis in one of the sectors and really, if it's successful, bring it to scale. And Michelle, I I think that more people than ever are aware of the importance of global health, of public health and health interventions and innovations. So, so, so what do we do with this moment? What do you hope for? That we vote in November. <laughs> um, no, I'm sorry. Uh, what do I hope for? Um, I, as I said, I hope for a that th- this becomes a wake up call um, for building our public health infrastructure. And I know Mary can talk a little bit more about this. Uh, but CDC is a wonderful, wonderful public health um, service, uh, but they are not allowed to go into states unless they're invited to go into states. Many of our states have only one person as the public health official or a couple. Um, I think we need a strengthening of this, and I think we need uh, an interdigitation of public health as well as uh, good clinical medicine. So, so Mary, talk about that um, strengthening of the public health infrastructure. Sure. There was an excellent New York Times opinion piece today on how as a nation we'll be able to recover from the pandemic stronger and fairer if we, in fact, do focus on building our public health infrastructure. And uh, they, they did a bit of a history tour to see how public health was wildly supported during the times of infectious diseases regularly ravaging our cities across the country. And that was, you know, measles and polio. But once we moved into more of a chronic disease uh, epidemiological phase, we cut our public health systems. And so, you know, the advantage that public health brought to increasing life expectancy in the United States from about 50 at the turn of the Uh, 20th century to almost 80 at the beginning of the 21st century, um, we we started backsliding and we saw a decline in life expectancy in the uh, first decade of the 21st century. And so what we've done is we've shifted our investments from public health to health care. And now we have to realize, as we said earlier, that that dichotomy between those two systems is a false dichotomy that many of the other nations in Europe and uh, in Asia don't understand. They see it as all one system. But between 2008 and 2017, we cut 50,000 core public health jobs. These are epidemiologists who could be tracking the the epidemic. Um, It was people who were able to, the laboratorians who could manage the testing and people who could do the messaging. And so we've pushed our public health decisions more to the state level. And as Michelle said, CDC has great uh, professionals, but they can only go into a state when invited. And so it's insanity that we have uh, a need for public health 
and we don't have the uniformity applied across the country. And so what a public health uh, expenditure in states ranges from is $5.74 in Missouri to a high of $114 in Alaska and California's $20.79. We rank 38th in the country. So how can we have really a national approach when we have that variation in the level of expenditure and we also are not prioritizing the linkage between public health and health care. And my hope is that that will be one of the things coming out of this pandemic. And can I add one other thing, Mary? I think we have to change our philosophy. We are a country that has fantastic curative medicine. We're at the top of R&D and research in our NIH, uh, but we really don't have a philosophy, philosophy that's geared towards preventive healthcare or population health care. Um, we're, we're all the big buzzword now is precision medicine. Let's look at our genome. Uh, let's target cells for individual tumor cells. But I, the bang for the buck is really about looking at population health and how we do prevention uh, rather than just cure. Michelle, you're singing my song. I, I, I can do both. Wow. So... One of the things that's keeping me up at night is wondering how this is going to play out, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, the continent of Africa, but particularly sub-Saharan Africa, who countries of which are just beginning to see the wave hit. What's your sense of what's going to happen? And, and what do we need to do to support our, our, our friends, our brothers and sisters and our, our colleagues in those countries? And Michelle, perhaps I could start with you. I, I, I it's, it's close to my head now because I just got off a National Academy of Science uh, call where we're trying to help the African Academy of Sciences think about this. They have a huge challenge. Um, they have a challenge not only um, because they don't have the materials, the testing and the PEP, uh, but they have large populations that can't possibly socially distance themselves in townships. Um, they also have a large burden of HIV and immunocompromised hosts. Um, they have problems with access to water for hand washing. Um, many, as we all know, that access to water can be very hard to find in the field um, in many of the rural countries. So they have, and food security is also an issue when you right. start to um, take away the food vendors. Um, look what's happening in India. Uh, where there's been this mass migration and people are going hungry uh, because the food vending in the streets has stopped and, and there is no gross, there's no DoorDash or grocery delivery. I mean, we live in such a privileged setting here. Uh, but to get back to your question, they're going to have a really hard time. Um, and, and the question is, um, this whole call this morning was how do we help them? You know, we're, we're obviously obsessed with what's happening in our own country. Um, but I think we need to continually remember that this is a global pandemic. Right. Just curing it in our borders is not going to stop this virus. And this is not the big one, right? honestly. Right. Uh, this is a, a virus that's very low mortality. And Ben, you know, we have uh, several programs through USAID and through CDC that are global we have global health fellows in, in both of those agencies who are working in Africa. And 
many of them have been pulled back to the U.S. to address the U.S. Uh, situation now. But I think we're going to have to make sure that we are not only sending back the teams that we've had in the past, but we're going to redouble our efforts. And Michelle knows the the STAR program at USAID is one that is focused on building capacity in those African countries, in the low and middle income countries, so that they do not have to be reliant over the long term in having the U.S. or other countries come in and address these pandemics or any of their healthcare needs, but we're helping them build both the public health infrastructure and their healthcare through partnerships with the academics and also with their NGO and government agencies. And we so can't, that's we what can't, we have to do. We can't let this be, go it on your own. No. We're but, in this together. Right. I mean, th- we just fired the entire Peace Corps and brought them all home. Why don't we retrain them to be epidemiologists and do contact tracing? I mean, I, I think there's so many innovative things that we can think about. Um, a couple of years ago, I tried to get a bill through with Durban on having a medical arm of the Peace Corps to actually help strengthen infrastructure and capacity around the country. Unfortunately, that got shot down. But I, I think we should need to raise this again. Uh, we need a corps of physicians uh, or nurses. It's not only physicians, believe me. Uh, nurses, healthcare workers, social workers. Um, well, let me lift uh, up also that we've had success in working with private sector companies who have volunteered to send people with technical expertise to spend a significant amount of time in low and middle income countries, particularly in Africa. And they have they have made a major difference in starting up new companies, in training people, in bringing some of their assets to help make a difference for the long term. And I think we need, along with a a medical um, core, we also need to pull our corporate leaders together and see what they can each contribute. Because as you said, we're all in this together. Every sector has to participate. So there is so much we could cover. But is there anything else that you would add immediately that you feel our viewers and listeners should know and should be aware of right now? Well, I think Michelle just said, you know, maybe this isn't the big one. Uh, Let's hope it's a long time before we have another big one. Uh, But we need to be investing in uh, our science, in our preparedness for a pandemic, in our core infrastructure, and we have to make this a global effort, as we said before. Um, We know about some of the viruses that exist, and we don't really do anything about it until it moves into the human, uh, you know, species. And we need to be anticipating how we can move more rapidly when that happens. So we need to learn political lessons and how to gain the trust of the community immediately when something hits. And I'd like to take a, 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 even a, a, a larger approach and say that uh, these spillovers are really part of what we're, everybody's calling the Anthropocene age, but kind of what, how man has impacted the planet. Yeah. We have deforested. If you look where Ebola started, uh, if you look at where 
Nipah virus is a great example of a virus uh, that because of farming and fruit bats and pigs being put together, an entirely novel uh, virus called the Nipah virus caused a 40% mortality in Malaysia. So when we deforest and we, we impact our planet, um, we're going to see this kind of spillover. And I would like to see a larger planetary lens um, put towards all these kinds of diseases as well. Totally agree. Yeah, absolutely. So as we wrap up, um, how are you staying sane? How are you coping <laughs> with uh, the, uh, the, the period of self-isolation and self-distancing? Um, I'm, I'm sort of scared to ask this question, Michelle, but, but do, <laughs> you, do you actually <laughs> get to watch it? What makes you think I'm it? sane? <laughs> <laughs> uh, what's your favorite uh, binge-watching TV show at the moment? Um, Do you have any time to see yeah, any? No, 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 no. Of course, of course. Um, so I like to escape when I'm at night, um, if I have any time. Uh, so I, I like to watch, you know, police procedurals like Endeavor or Bodyguard. I like um, um, uh, shows that have strong women protagonists. Uh, I, I really liked Killing Eve and uh, just recently Unorthodox, um, strong women protagonists. That's what I do. Um, but I do a lot of hiking. I need to get out there and exercise. And, and how about you, Mary? Well, I have two very active Norwegian elk hounds who are two years old Ooh. and need <laughs> to get out and run. So every day I have to go for a very long walk and let those dogs, you know, really exercise. Um, but I love to cook and I love to garden. And so part of my sanity comes from growing food in the garden and then uh, cooking. And so I've been trying to go back through all of those recipes that I'd set aside and said, oh, that would be fun to cook someday. And I'm trying to go through. And so my family- I'm giving them to my husband. <laughs> <laughs> my family has been the beneficiary of that. Um, but I also have found that we've connected with friends on Zoom and Google Hangouts, and I've been looking at Facebook to catch up with people more frequently. And it's kind of nice, in a way, to have my daughter home from college. Um, one of the things that I found that we do is we'll take a break. She's taking her classes online, and uh, I'll take a break and we'll play a game of Othello or we'll sit and talk for a little while and just, you know, break up the routine at the house. Well, I, I so appreciate you both taking the time out of your extraordinarily busy schedules and the crucial, crucial work you're doing to to protect not only us here in the Bay Area, but but basically society around the world. So so thank you so much, Mary. Thank you so much, Michelle. Um, you are both shots in the arm. Oh, thanks, Ben. Thank you, Ben, for doing these. Stay safe and stay, stay strong. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks again to Mary and Michelle, and thanks to Sarah Anderson for the coordination support from the Bay Area Global Health Alliance. We hope you found the show useful and informative. As always, we would love to know your thoughts on the subjects we have covered and issues you think we ought to address. 
Please contact us through the usual social networks, including Twitter and Facebook, at Shotarm Podcast. Our thanks to our producer and director, Erica Spera of Newsdoc Media, who makes the magic happen. And finally, thanks to you for joining us. Have a great week and a safe week, everyone. Yeah.